This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode contains reference to and some description of sexual abuse and child abuse. We will list some support services at the end and on the full story page. But for now, listen with care. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. For decades, Indigenous children were taken from their families and kept in boarding houses, missions and reserves across Australia. Their stories have become part of our national history, documented in a federal government inquiry. So the Bringing Them Home report came out in 1997, so nearly 30 years ago. But I worked on that inquiry in the hearings phase. For Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs editor, Lorena Allam, the stories from Kinchula Aboriginal Boys' Home stood out. This place, run by the New South Wales government from 1924 to 1970, was one of the most violent and abusive institutions of the Stolen Generations era. And I well remember the survivors of Kinchula Boys' Home. One of the recommendations they made was that the area be surveyed because they believed that, quote, some children may have met with foul play on the site. Earlier this year, Indigenous Affairs reporter Sarah Collard got a tip. I had heard from a survivor that I had had done a story with it, that they were wanting to scan the former site of the Kinchilla Boys' Home and they had concerns that there may be children who have died and might have been secretly buried on site over the home's duration. Sarah mentioned that to me and then I thought, yeah, that's, that's what they said 30 years ago. There's something in this. Then we started looking. Today, the buried lives of the stolen generations. It's Tuesday, the 12th of September. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Testing, testing. Okay, Sarah, tell us what, what... Yes, it's Sunday afternoon. We're here in Kinchilla Boys' Home. It's three... Is it three o'clock? Mm. I don't know the time. 3.17. Three seventeen. Three seventeen. <laughs> Lorena, Sarah, you went out to Kinchilla Boys' Home and this place is really a significant site in Australian history. A lot of mob know about this place. What is it like? It's just outside of Kempsey, so it's about a 15-minute drive from Kempsey, around a five-and-a-half-hour drive north of Sydney. It's bordering a, a river, so the Maclay River, which is a very large, thick river, and it's across the road where you can see it, and it's got trees and there's, like, old structures and, and buildings and barbed wire. 
The buildings are empty now. After Kinchilla closed in 1970, it was turned into Benelong Haven, which was like a dry out and treatment centre for Aboriginal people recovering from addiction. Mm. Ironically, some of the Kinchilla survivors ended up there as adults in the dry out centre, and you can understand why. But now it's empty. It's owned by the Kempsey Land Council, but there's no one living there. It's kind of it's kind of spooky because it's empty, but also because there's this very palpable history in the place. Yeah, you can feel a bit of darkness there. I think there's a bit of tension there when you arrive. You were there to meet the uncles of Kinchilla. They're, you know, a few of the 56 remaining survivors. Tell me about them. Yeah, so we had been talking with the uncles for several months. You know, they're men that are aged in their 60s, 70s. Is that all right if we record? Yeah, definitely. No. <laughs> I can talk underwater, though, that's all right, joking. Approaching 80 and been through some really horrendous experiences as, as children, but they're often, you know, laughing, joking, yarning, telling stories. It was very much like we were hanging out with our uncles. It was really, it was a, it was a beautiful time because they, as Sarah said, they're really lovely to each other. We sat down with each of them one by one and it really was up to them how and when and where they told their stories and sometimes they would tell you something in one spot and then pick it up somewhere else and they um, call each other by their numbers as well so when they went into the home their names were taken away and they were given a number and they were referred to only as that number. You know when we first come here walked in the gate first thing they said okay you're not Richard anymore you're now number 28. So when they want to get each other's attention, they go, hey, 28. And they all say, what do you want? So they, they've reclaimed that for themselves, you know. Mm. My name's Roger Jarrett, number 12, Kinsler boy. So Uncle Roger Jarrett is 76 years old. He grew up in, in Kempsey and he was taken from his family when he was 11 years old. And he told me how he came to be at Kinchilla and... Basically, his mother was, you know, a, a woman who had never received a proper education. She had been denied basic human rights, had been on the run from the government for many years, trying to not be removed herself. So one day when the welfare workers arrived at their home, the, the government worker sat his mother down. Mum had a little table and chair where she went out of smoke. Sat mum down and said, Mr Jarrett, if you sign these papers... Your kids will return within four months. A lot of them were told their parents were dead or didn't want them, had given them away. They were Some of them were told they weren't Aboriginal, that they should stay away from Aboriginal people. Yeah, many of the boys had no idea. You know, they were picked up from school. They were picked up from, uh, you know, they were called into the officer's home. They were picked up from a bus stop waiting for the bus. And sometimes their mothers had no idea what happened to them for decades. Mm. Took us down here, got to the gates of Kinchler here. They all say, independent of each other, they describe the kind of induction into this hellhole, they called it. Put me in here, stripped me naked, cut our hair off, wash us, had a scrum brush and sand slap to scrub yourself with it. Then dried yourself off with a towel, covered your eyes and mouth over. They threw this white powder over you. You know, to a they reckon we were full of lice. <laughs> we were never full of lice. And you couldn't even brush it off. You had to leave it on till it just actually wore off. They took their shoes away. 
and the boys never got shoes except when officials were coming to visit. So they, their whole day was barefoot, even in the winter. Their clothes were hand-me-downs from other boys. They were either too big or too small. And you see in a lot of the archival photos, these little boys have got their bits of string holding their trousers up. And from the very beginning, it was a very traumatising place. What do we know about life at Kinchilla? There was a lot of brutality that officials at the time were aware of. It was one of the worst places that survivors talked about. I asked Uncle Richard what were the kind of things that they would get punished for. Wet the bed, you know, not cleaning your shoes properly, not cleaning your teeth, you know, probably um, uh, you got a little bit of stain in your, in your, in your underpants, you know, and things like that, so yeah, buddy. Anything, anything just stupid, you know. And Uncle Richard said these uh, staff were all grown men, you know. He recalled them being six foot tall and that they'd, they were ex-military. They'd belted in the back of the head or across the ears and that, you know. And, and they, these were these were ex, ex-army fellas growing up, those six foot plus people, you know, and, you know, expected us to fight back. How are you going to fight, you know, big men when you're looking up at them? Why the government put me in charge of us, I don't know. And luckily they're all gone now, they're all dead. So nobody was charged for, for what happened to us. So like in 1937, there was a manager who was sacked after the police were called because he was using stock whips on the boys. Food was withheld. And the worst one was over the tree, you know, they used to tie us up with the chain. A particular side of really harrowing stories and memory for the former inmates at Conchilla was this fig tree, and it's this massive, giant fig tree with roots that are like four or five feet high. And the boys were chained to this tree when they did minor infractions. Over the back there, the fig tree, it had a six-foot chain on it, and the boys said something trivial again. They'd cut the bags out of a sleeves out of a sugar bag and the head part, put it on and wet it, take them out there, chain them up, padlock them and leave them out there. So we walked out there late in the afternoon, the sun was going down. It was a really beautiful afternoon, actually. Uh, walking towards this beautiful big fig tree that has this terrible, terrible story. And um, we walked over and Uncle Bobby Young waved us over and he said, here, look, I want you to look at this. Yeah. What are we looking at here? The chains there. And he pointed to the chains of the that were still embedded in the tree that we used to tie them up when they were kids. Yeah, they had six foot chains, and this is where they tied it up at night with nothing on. Air shave, winter time, they would chuck cold water over here. Wouldn't give you feed. Uncle Bobby said he was tied there overnight. He had no clothes on. How old were you? Probably about 10, 10 or 11. They would be doused with cold water even in the winter. They could be left up there for days at a time. What we used to do when the boys was tied up, tied up, tied up, 
he got really upset, obviously, as you would imagine, telling us that story when we were standing there. And you could tell he was, he was back there in that time remembering what happened. But he, he said when it happened to other boys, when, he, when other boys were chained up there, they would sneak him up a bit of corn. They'd boil him up some corn or an egg or something and smuggle it up there so they would have something to eat. We used to boil the eggs and the corns and give them something to eat because they wouldn't feed them. That's how bad they was. So you imagine, cramped up there, oh, either one night or two nights, and they come and keep chucking cold water on you, you know? Especially in wintertime. And some of the boys, uh, the men, told us that, that they were sexually abused when they were tied up to this tree. And the men, you know, did whatever they liked to you, whether it was physically, mentally, sexually. So it's, it's a place of, you know, a lot of trauma and, and violence. The kids are the most, you know, bloody, um, oh, kids are innocent, eh? We were innocent, you know, so how do you rape innocence? You know, and, and, and yeah, they, they stole their innocence, they took it, you know, they, they, and they, they did it legally. At night, I used to cry because I used to go to Catholic school and there's white God on the cross. And they say, you scream out to him, he'll come and help you. Well, I screamed out, I screamed out. It's like getting out in the dark world and screaming and nobody can hear you. So I gave up on that God. Living in conditions like that, it's no surprise that some kids did not survive did the uncles know of any kids who had died or went missing? So the uncles that we spoke to told us stories about how, you know, boys would be there one day and go on the next. They wouldn't know what had happened to them. And you didn't know they adopted out or thrown in a river or buried somewhere. You know, you didn't know. Because the staff were men and they raped that many boys in this home that they could have killed some of the boys through that, you know what I mean? You, you don't know, never Treatment know. was so brutal. Yeah, exactly right, yeah. We also heard stories of other uncles who are now unfortunately deceased but had told them that they were forced to, you know, bury graves of, of bodies of children who had died. And a lot of the uh, older generations of those kids that went through those homes are no longer with us. In 2008, when Kevin Rudd made the apology to the Stolen Generations, there was a man who spoke to the Sydney Morning Herald. His father told him in 2008 that he had been instructed to dig graves at Kinchilla. So this has been a persistent story about the site, which is why they've been pushing so hard for, for the scans to be done so that they can know for sure. Tell me about these scans that have discovered these, you know, potential secret graves. What did they do and what did they find? So a team of experts and archaeologists visited the site over several visits and they firstly gathered oral history and testimony from the uncles about sites of abuse and areas of concern that survivors had identified. And they conducted these scans with ground-penetrating radar. What do you mean by ground-penetrating radar? What is that? So uh, ground-penetrating radar is a radar that essentially is scanned over Earth to look at subterranean um, sediments or layers, and it looks at disturbances in soil that are different from surroundings of the soil. So basically it's looking for any anomalies that don't really fit with the patterns of, of previous um, soil distributions. 
And so what combining these methods, speaking to the uncles and this kind of technology, what exactly did they find? The report that was done by the archaeologists uh, said that there were nine anomalies that were high priority areas that should be further investigated because they returned the signals on a GPR that in other contexts have been identified as historical burials Mm. and carry the signatures of clandestine burials. So clandestine burials are often in places where other burials are not. Mm. So it's not a graveyard, it's it's one off or two, one here, two there. Um, And they're also quite close to the surface. But there's lots of other information that they look at in order to make this conclusion. Mm. And the GPR expert that I spoke to said that they were quite small, consistent with a small child. The important thing about that report, though, is that they cannot tell for sure whether these are burials until and unless they excavate. So the report certainly says that uh, points very strongly to the fact that they could be. They very much resemble the signals that you would expect to find when you find a clandestine burial. And remember, this technology is being used very widely around the world. It's used regularly to determine unmarked graves, you know, where a cemetery and a a subdivision might collide, they will use the GPR to determine whether or not they're building on, you know, someone's an old, old grave. The report also said there were other sites of trauma that they couldn't explore because they were underneath the existing structures. And they also recommended that the whole site be surveyed, including there's a paddock directly behind the, the home where the uncles have very strongly said a search should be conducted and and the report said that they should even look at bringing in cadaver dogs because that might be another non-invasive way to know for sure. So they're, they're certainly not mincing any words in this report about what they've potentially located. How has the New South Wales government responded to this discovery and this report? Well, late on Thursday they did reply to some of our questions and said that they are committed to continuing to address a a report that they agreed to back in 2016 called Unfinished Business, which is about reparations for the stolen generations. And as part of that report, they did make a commitment to continue to search for potential clandestine burials. So it sounds to me like that is an ongoing commitment, but they have not provided any detail of how that might now look. The minister, through a spokesperson, said that he's asked his department to update him on the situation. Um, So that is a potentially hopeful sign that the survivor groups and the other people who have an interest in the site will see some progress on this or at least be brought together so they can determine what they want to do next. The Kinchula Boys Home Survivor Organisation, KBHAC, are frustrated, though, because this report, they say, has been with the government since March this year and that progress on it has stalled. I'd say they, we've got to get some truth done because they've got away with all these lies and stuff for that long. I'm 76 and I want to see some truth in my lifetime and make the government accountable for what they've done for, to us. Ta. The uncles were very clear in their demands. They say that they can't fully heal, that they can't really turn this site into a place of of healing and reflection until they know for sure what's underneath. Lorena, Sarah, this is one boys' home and we know that Indigenous kids were taken to institutions across Australia, hundreds of them, over, over decades. How many graves, whether clandestine or unmarked, 
could there be overall? Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. So we know in the course of doing this work, we uncovered uh, several mass burial sites in Queensland. And Sarah has worked on uh, looking at institutions in WA. We had been speaking with survivors and, and, and descendants who had told us about their concerns around unmarked graves of their loved ones who were um, buried without any recognition, without any honour, and they are really calling for greater recognition and commemoration of, of those sites. So this is the gravesite here. Um, that was one of the many gravesites for Carolup Mission. Do many people know about this burial site here? Only the people that lived out here and the kids that was here. They're the only ones who know about it. I mean, I didn't even know it existed until my wife told me about it. Do you expect some of the babies and kids that passed away here, do you expect that they would be on these grounds somewhere? Yes, they would be, yep. All of these children would be buried around here somewhere. Yeah. Next, the hundreds of unmarked graves of Western Australia. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sarah, you travelled to Western Australia earlier this year. Tell me a bit about that trip and where you went. So I, I travelled uh, a few months ago to, to Western Australia, mainly around the southern and wheat belt regions of, of, of WA, visiting uh, missions there. So missions were basically government or church-run institutions where Aboriginal people were taken and moved from their traditional lands and often children were removed from their families and taken to these missions. So we visited four. So we went to Moore River, which was later Magumba, Carolup Mission, which was later Marybank, Wandering Mission and Nunausia. We were going there to talk about the unmarked graves that are on these missions and, and reserves so from our research and work in WA, we found more than 700 potential unmarked graves at just three missions in, in Western Australia. And out of those, more than 400 are, are children and, and babies. When you say unmarked graves, what do you mean? So a, a lot of these missions during this time was an era when Aboriginal people were separated and were under strict controls of the government of, of the day. And when they died, they often weren't allowed to be buried in cemeteries or they were buried on cemeteries that were close to these missions and, and reserves. And these um, have over the years deteriorated and, and many of them were never marked out so we looked at public records, including WA births, deaths and marriage records, um, identifying the place of death, state library and public cemetery records and burial registers, including the Moore River Cemetery record. 
and uh, we were able to, to piece together that number from there. I think to understand why more than 400 children died at these three missions, you need to know a bit about what they were like. Tell me about the conditions there. The conditions at some of these places was deplorable. At Moor River, the conditions were very poor. Food and dormitories were dilapidated and, and poor quality and death and disease were basically rife. Moor River is also probably most well known to Australian audiences and those internationally as the setting for the book and, and film Rabbit Proof Fence, where, you know, it details the young girls who escaped from there and tried to get back home to Jigalong. Mm. People from all over the state came to this mission from, you know, remote communities from far up north to Kununurra to Mikathara to Jigalong to, to Broome to down south. You know, kids were taken from from everywhere. The conditions in these missions were often so poor that children died from, you know, hunger, from disease, from sickness and ill health. It's quite sad to, to, to visit there. Like there's a um, there's a memorial that's been done recently for the centennial, which has a, a plaque with um, the names of people who have died there. There's some plaques, floral tributes, the names of the people who have died, and the year and the dates of their death. Nyalabuja, hmm. Nyalakulunga our land, our children. People have also tied the red, black and yellow of the Aboriginal flag in ribbons and yarn around some posts near the cemetery, paying honour to their loved ones and those who have passed away here. We can also see plastic little flowers and wreaths of people who have laid them here at this, this plaque which honours the, the people who have passed away. Little crosses. Do you think that many people are aware that we have mass graves around our, our states and across the country? I don't think so. I think from what we've been speaking to a lot of the people and a lot of the elders that I spoke to and descendants felt frustrated that there wasn't that recognition that, you know, their loved ones don't have any kind of grave that they can visit, that they can see, that it's not like other people who can go and see a tidy headstone, for instance. They have maybe a shrub or a cross or a name on a plaque with nobody. Sarah, while looking at the mission records, you also found some discrepancies that seemed suspicious, including at one mission, Wandering Mission. Tell me about that. So there's a number of cases where children who are reported as, as dying or disappearing at missions, but there's no um, evidence as to where they're buried. And we also spoke to one elder who believes that there were a number of children and, and babies who died at, at Wandering Mission that has never been investigated and there's no official uh, cemetery there or any kind of markers there. So I, I went out to Wandering Mission, which is about um, an hour and a bit um, south of Perth. And we went out there with Annie Frances Wimblum and, and her sister and she took us back to um, Wandering Mission, which was run by Catholics from the 40s until the 70s. And, and, and when we returned, this was her only second visit in nearly 60 years. 
sometimes, like I said, when you're sitting quiet like this, you, you, know, you feel like you can hear the kids, kids playing in the paddocks and that. You feel like they're going to run up and say, hey, Francis, here you are, and things like that, you know? She took us through the former home that that she had grown up in from the age of eight years old, and she spoke with a lot of grief, so there was quite a lot of trauma there. I probably think about the place a lot tonight. Mm. And that, so, if I come back down this way again, I don't know. So, Annie Francis told us about her experiences there, including, you know, being beaten, being abused uh, sexually and physically by staff there. And she also spoke about the rumours and whispers that the girls at at the home had heard about children and and babies being buried beneath the convent at the Wandering Mission. See beyond that big bush there? That's around about there where they had the little, like, graves. And and she spoke about when she was a girl there, that this was something that was known about the children there. There was there was wart iron fences that there, and there seemed to be little mounds that seemed to suggest that there were people buried there. What did it look like? Well, when you sort of like back then, it was uh, like. <laughs> It was like like little graves. You can see the mounds and the wrought iron. So why would they have it fenced off with wrought iron if there wasn't graves there? So you don't you don't really know. Maybe girls got pregnant and and they had their babies and stillborn and buried them here. You don't know. So it was a very green kind of shady patch just to the side of, of the convent and the convent is quite derelict now. There's smashed windows and it's, you know, peeling paint and quite dilapidated. But there's a small wooden um, fence, probably about hip high, which just runs along the corner and that's it, um, which, which seems to be out of place, but that's the only marker or description that there's actually anything there. And when I spoke to other survivors, they had also heard those stories and, and had been told that growing up. And and she wants um, ground penetration radar done to figure out if there are secret burials there. Sarah, what have these churches and the WA government done to find and properly recognise grave sites on the missions? So at Moore River, one of the largest unmarked burial sites, they have got a memorial there with names and a commemorative plaque, but many of the other missions have nothing at all. And the WA government declined to answer questions on whether it would actually commit funding to ground penetrating scans on former mission sites, but said that it's committed to supporting and helping Aboriginal people uncover their history and heritage. And it's working on strategies that are looking at truth telling and healing to improve the lives of Aboriginal West Australians. And also in Nunorcia, the Benedict Monastery have started this work to identify grave sites and they've identified 19 unmarked graves. And they told me in light of the investigation that they would be open to GPR scans, but one of the biggest problems was that they just didn't know how many there were. It seems to me that Francis's story and the stories of the uncles of Kinchula have a lot in common. We just don't know what happened to some of these kids and we don't know where they were buried. Could this be the start 
of a kind of national conversation around these grave sites? I hope so. I think a lot of uh, descendants and survivors have been wondering and thinking and talking about this for a very long time. A number of descendants and survivors got in touch with us after this story came out and told us that they had been looking for their grandmothers or their great-grandmothers who were buried in missions and they didn't know where they were. And they spoke about some of the challenges of trying to find out where their loved ones and ancestors were buried and some of the difficulties that they've had communicating with church and government institutions. As someone who worked on the Bringing Them Home inquiry almost 30 years ago, it distresses me to hear that these things remain unresolved, that people still don't have their records, that people still don't know where their children were buried. People still don't know whether or not those clandestine burials took place, if they are children in the ground or who they are. The fact that we still don't know these things all these years later doesn't fill me with a great deal of optimism that we are capable as a nation of dealing with this. It's difficult to know if this is a national reckoning or not. Many of the missions and the homes across the country are dilapidated and neglected by the state, as you've said. But once all these graves have been found and they've been recognised in some way. What do survivors want these places to become? So a lot of the survivors that I spoke to were really upset and disheartened that the sites have been allowed to fall into such disrepair and, you know, basically are, are falling apart and they want them to be returned to their former glory. You know, we've got people that would like them to be places of, of healing for survivors, but also places of education. So people who don't know about the stolen generations can come and can learn about what life was like on these missions and at these sites. And so the uncles of Kinjala, when they walk around the site, have some big plans about what they want to turn it into. They want to take it away from its that its history of horror and turn it into something really positive and meaningful for stolen generations and their descendants. If we could do get this place back, we're going to turn it into a living museum, you know. And um, apparently there's a place down the back, back of the farm where the trees, we're going to sort of make it a healing place for us, you know, so place where people can learn about what happened here, you know, and, and listen, yeah, tell the truth, you know. It's very important to the survivors that they leave some legacy to future generations, to their kids, that there's some place for them to go to feel connected to their history, but also to heal from that history. That word healing, how did the uncles deal with that? How do they find that in their lives? Well, they find it in their families. You know, when you talk to them, they are so proud of having kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Like Uncle Roger takes great pride in his family. But at the moment, I have son and daughter. I've got nine grandkids and I've got ten great-grandbabies. So I'm a bloody king. And, you know, they also find it in each other. So what else what else helps when you're feeling the memories of this place? Yeah. Talking to people like yourself. Even when we get together, me and the boys. So they call themselves a brotherhood and they really are like brothers. They, and this is a bond that was forged in hell. You know, I think they clearly love each other. They have helped each other. They 
are a family to each other. You know, they're the family they didn't get. I couldn't catch you. That was the uncles of Kinchella speaking to Indigenous Affairs editor Lorena Allen and Indigenous Affairs reporter Sarah Collard. If this episode has affected you, a crisis support line for Indigenous Australians is available on 13 Yarn, which is 139276. You can also call Lifeline on 131114, and adult survivors of child abuse can seek help at Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380. If you want to learn more about this story, you can read the whole Buried Lives series right now at theguardian.com. I particularly recommend the feature story titled Taken to Hell, Even Today, Survivors of Kinchilla Boys' Home Are Known by Their Numbers. It has some beautiful pictures of the uncles and some details about their fight for the site to be recognised and be turned into a healing centre. There's also many, many more stories from elders and families of the Western Australian missions in that series as well. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and Daniel Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer is Hannah Parks. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.